<laughs> I can't believe this is happening to me. Uh, Angel, are you okay? I'm uh, not okay. I'm very, very sad. And as you can see, I'm crying. What, what's wrong? I did a very big mistake. What? Oh, no. What, what's... The, the, what other, we do? the other day, I confused two comets. Oh. Yeah. Because last episode, I was saying that there was any bright comet at the moment. There wasn't. There wasn't any? Of course, there is one very big, bright comet at the moment you can almost see with your naked eye. Well then, it's a little bit different from none. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I confused the C2018 V1 Machos Fujikawa Iwamoto comet, which was the comet recently discovered by these amateur astronomers, as we mentioned in the last episode, Yes. with famous P46 Wurzanen comet. Oh. Right, the Christmas comet. Yeah, exactly. Some people are talking about the Christmas comet, about that. Exactly. The day that we released our latest episode, we started to have images and a lot oh. of information <laughs> and the maps. And look, it's going to be very bright in the sky. And I couldn't believe, I really couldn't believe that I confused the two comets. <laughs> so I'm not the amateur astronomer I used to be. There we go. Payback for making me feel sad about all the comets that I've missed. Hopefully I can see this one then. Okay, well, I think we are going to have a very long episode. So let's go to it. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Angel Lopez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And we are the Scientists. has officially landed. Woohoo! We you did it! Yeah, we did it! We did it! We have another probe on Mars. Yes, another robot on potentially the only planet in the solar system that is only inhabited by robots, we think. Oh, yeah. That is an interesting point. Mm. All right, well, that's some pretty great news. Insight has landed successfully. Last time when we recorded our episode, we weren't sure because it was still just on its way in. But it was just some few hours before just a few it landed. Hours. That's right. I think it was about 16 hours. Since something, something like that, yeah. Something like that, yes. So, so many things are happening in space right now. Yeah, and I will say that perhaps that is already ancient history. It really is ancient history. It's over two weeks ago now. Exactly. And that in internet and social media, that is a long, long time ago. That's right. It's old news. Honestly, I can't remember what happened yesterday. Oh, well, <laughs> for me, it was a busy day with my son. Oh, very nice, very nice. A very <laughs> lovely, sunny Sunday. Would have been very nice. Yeah, um, we went to a Christmas carol concert. Oh, and, wonderful. And uh, yeah, they sang a very interesting version of Jingle Bells. Oh, okay. Australian Jingle Bells. Oh, yes, Australian Jingle Bells. Yes, yes, I know it well. I know it well. It's good. But well, there is more news to have because news is a very fast game. There's always new news. More new news in astronomy. Okay. (laughs) Interesting game of news. So who is starting with the space news today? I think I'll start. Okay. Because my my space news has quite a clickbait title. It is the epic history of light reveals the universe peaked 10 billion years ago. Now, what does that mean? Basically, we're talking that the star formation 
of the universe, in the universe, peaked about 10 billion years ago. So currently, for the last 10 billion years, the universe has been on a downward spiral. We're just getting worse. Although I think we're getting prettier. Yeah. I have to the, say. There is much more diversity of galaxies mm -hmm. and the material of the universe have been enriched much That's more right. than just uh, 10 billion years ago. Exactly. Because of the continuing recycling the elements within the stars and supernova explosion and so on. And probably we have now many more planets that we had 10 billion years ago. Exactly. Plus, there would have been much less gold in the universe 10 billion years ago. Mm -hmm. That's also There's true. Less neutron stars colliding back then. Hmm. Would there even be neutron stars? Maybe a few neutron stars existing back then. Back then, no, there should be, there ago? should be, of course, yeah. there should be, because they are the descendants of the most massive stars when mm. they're not becoming a black hole, so there that, should be many neutron stars in that time. That's true. Uh, where did you get that news from? I got this news from new scientists. News, but, but I mean, but it was based on which kind of data? Oh, it's based on data from a long, long time ago. This is This sort of stuff has been known for a very long time. It's just come out and become public news. Although it's been public, hold on, it's been publicly made famous. Okay, I think that have been in the news some few times because sure. there have been some uh, other studies in the past that have been using this kind of analysis of star formation in galaxies far, far away just to try to see how the rate of star formation have been changing through the cosmic time. And in particular, I remember because it is a very famous review paper by my boss, Andrew <laughs> Hopkins, who more than a decade ago, published a very nice paper saying exactly that. But the good thing is that using different kind of data, of more amount of data, and different kind of wavelengths, because for Andrew's review, they were using much more the optical data spectroscopy. Mm. Also, this was one of the main results of one of the most famous galaxy surveys that have been conducted at the Anglo-Australian Telescope, the Gamma Survey Galaxy and Mass Assembly. Mm. But from this one, I think they were also using more... They used the, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space S Telescope. Gamma yep. Ray. So it was using the information codified in Gamma Rays. Mm -hmm. They looked they, at 740 cosmic objects that emit high-energy Gamma Rays. And from mm -hmm. there, they have been able to estimate that strong star formation activity that the universe had around 10 billion years ago. Mm. And I think to remember that it's actually around two orders of magnitude higher than it is at the moment. Something like that. Something like I that. I think so, yeah. So okay. that, that's my space news. What's your space news? Uh, my space news is I like to bring here some ideas and projects for inviting people to help us astronomers and scientists to continue studying the universe. A couple of episodes ago, I was talking about a very interesting citizen science project to look for galaxy clusters. But today, what I'm bringing it is the Planet Hunters TESS. Oh, I love TESS. I watched it launch online, but still, I watched it launch a few months ago. TESS, it is in some way the successor. To Kepler. To Kepler, yeah. yeah. It means a transiting exoplanet survey satellite because it's doing exactly that. It is just observing a very large field of stars and relatively bright stars and trying to find if there is periodic themes mm. in the light that we are getting from these stars. When planets move in front of it exactly. from, us, from our perspective. Like a kind of a small eclipse mm. that we call a transit, talking properly. That reminds me that we have never had a special program about finding exoplanets. So that is in the to-do list. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
So, well, they have released plenty of data from this satellite that it was launched very recently, just a year ago or something Not like even that. a year ago. I, it was this year was when this. I was in university because I was in my quantum physics lecture in the morning and my lecturer was late, so I hijacked the projector screen <laughs> and made my made my class watch the launch of tests. And then when my lecturer came in, he's like, okay, Kirsten, get up there. You're a science communicator. Explain what just happened. I'm like, no, 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 it's too early for this. <laughs> <laughs> so the data that have been compiled so far has been put, published in the Su Universe webpage. Mm -hmm. So you go to suuniverse.org. RG, and then you can find Planet Hunter there. And the only thing you have to do is just first read in the tutorial and follow the examples that are shown there, and then just choose the light curve that is coming in your web browser. Mm. Let's see if you can find a kind of dims, mm. periodic dims in the data, and you choose them, and perhaps you are finding and discovering for the very first time an exoplanet around a nearby star. Mm. Because the majority of these stars are still relatively nearby. Yeah. Good stuff then. Good. Good stuff. So, what else do we have for the space news? Do we have something that we also want to comment together, which is halfway between space news, halfway between WhatsApp, which is what we already mentioned at the beginning. Yes. The yes. comet. The comet. You're still a bit sad about it, aren't you? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm very, very, very. But I'm very sad about that. But I will say that I'm even sadier. Can I say that? More Sa sadier? Sadier. When I'm even <laughs> more, more sad. sad. Because I have been trying to get a photo of this uh, comet for the last few nights. Mm. And because of a conjunction of different circumstances, I have not been able to do that. The only thing was just to get a very short exposure with my digital camera. And mm. it is there. It is actually the best way to see it for the first time, it is just put your DSLR yep. more or less in the direction of the sky, take a... About a five, 15 second... I've heard uh, 15 is good. But well, it depends on the light pollution. That's true, yes. <laughs> so uh, be between 5 and 10, perhaps even less if you have a very good camera and you are nearby the city or in mm. the city. And then you for sure will see an object that is a bit larger than the full moon. Oh. The coma is very big at the moment. Ooh. And that is Comet 46P Wirtanen. That's it, yes. It's the one of the brightest and closest comets that we've had in the last 70 years. That is right. The 10th the closest tenth. comet, because yep. it will be at around 11.5 million kilometers away from Earth, mm -hmm. which is almost nothing. The best moment to see the comet, it is at the beginning of the night, more or less looking to the northeast, and of course, you need a map. Yes. You need a map to, to, to really see where it is. Unless you want to go blindly with the camera if you are in a dark place and you will eventually find it. Mm. But try and aim for the northeastern sky. Like go, go to Orion and left a little bit. It is right now in Eridanus, as in the moment we are recording this, but it's going north, which is sad for us in the southern hemisphere. Yes. Because even though it having doubled the Christmas comet, mm -hmm. for us in the southern hemisphere, it is not going to be the Christmas comet. No, it's an early Christmas present for the southern hemisphere folk. <laughs> it will be for the northern hemisphere. It will be very bright there. Although, 
Um, I think that the closest uh, moment to Earth... Should be the 16th or 17th yeah, 15, of December? Yeah, 15 December or something like that. It occurs at the same time as a particular meteor shower. Yeah, but, but we'll, we will say that we'll later. We'll come back to that later. In the late evening of December 16, that mm. will be, I think... Um, so this will be the best moment to try to see it. I swear, so it better be clear that night. Friday, Friday, December 14, Saturday, December 15, mm-hmm. and particularly on Sunday, December 16, because, at least from here, from Australia, but also from, you have to double check exactly where, but more or less, the same in, in, in the rest of the world, the comet will be halfway between the Pleiades and the Hyades. Oh, yes, it will, won't it? And I'm sure that we will get an astronomical picture of the day from there, from someone. Oh, for who, sure. Who is going to get a fantastic image of the three objects. You know what? I hope it's still up in our skies on the 17th of December because I'm working at Sydney Observatory that night. And boy, am I going to try it. If it's clear, I better be clear. I'm going to try and point the telescope at it. It is going to be clear. The problem is that the comet is that large at the moment that using a big telescope is not going to help you. So you're going to only to be seeing the center part of the the comet, not the nucleus, because the nucleus is hidden within all the coma. But the nebulosity, the coma, that is the atmosphere involving the comet, it is quite big at the moment. Right. Um, very greenish. Hey, ooh, and green. it is starting to show a tail. Okay. So let's see. We have to pay attention to that. Mm. Please have a look to this fantastic object. doesn't matter if you're in the southern hemisphere. But if you're in the southern hemisphere, try to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully those clouds stay away. It's a bit cloudy at the moment where if, we are. If you're in the northern hemisphere, you will still have a bit of extra time. And 46p at it. The name says it was the 46th comet that was classified as comet and the orbit was determined. And ah. it was discovered by an American astronomer called Carl Wirtanen, and that is what it is called, Wirtanen, and it needs 5.4 years on average to go around the sun. Yeah. And the last curiosity, that was originally the comet that Rosetta spacecraft from the European Space Agency was going to be analyzing. But because of delays in getting the the spacecraft ready, at the end they decided it was a bit too long to wait for again for this, and they decided studying the comet 60P Churimov-Garasimenko or Churi for friends. Well, there you go. Look out for the Christmas comet coming up in our night skies now. But what it's time for now... Time for the main event. Which is... Mars. Mars. We're finally doing our Mars episode, and I'm so excited because there is so much to talk about. There's too much to talk about. So much. We are going to try to do a very brief summary here, because if not, we will never end. We, we are try. We're going to try. We are going to try. <laughs> First, we're going to start off with something very recent with Mars, and that is, of course, what we mentioned before, the InSight mission, which has successfully landed, thank Goodness. And I'm not sure if you guys saw a an article or if you saw an article on hell uh, recently when it successfully landed, but um, a quote from yours truly was included in said article. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yes. that I saw that. I'm so happy because I gave them a, quite a few quotes, answering a few questions, and the one quote that they picked out of my long email was my great, great pun that this Mars lander is going to give us an insight 
into Mars. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said specifically as well, I make no apologies and I make no apologies now for the pun because it is fantastic. <laughs> it is. It is very, yeah. I think that also the, that name of the lander mm. have that connection intended. I think so. I think it's a, a reverse um, acronym where they started with the acronym first and then in, inserted uh, words to make the acronym work which I totally respect. That is awesome. But the reason why I like to say it gives us an insight, and I'm sure how NASA says an insight as well, is because it literally is drilling into Mars and seeing what the inside of Mars is like. But it is interesting to note that we perhaps have been used to curiosity, opportunity, species, rovers that, mm, uh, that move we, around. That they are moving around yep. and they have taken fantastic images and we will say perhaps a bit more later. But... Uh, inside it is just a lander that is going to stay there yep it's just it's just staying there it's, staying, it's not moving anywhere staying there it's going to do exactly what you said in the sense of trying to understand a bit the interior of mm. mars and it's going to look for mars quakes oh i love that mars quakes <laughs> makes sense like we call them earthquakes here with their quakes on the earth and if there are Mars, they're Mars quakes. Yeah, because it is still not completely clear if there is any kind of tectonic plates mm. still on Mars or not. For some time in the last couple of decades, I would say, the consensus has been that Mars doesn't have any, mm. but still not completely confirmed. Yeah, we're not sure. So that's why we send this seismometer over mm. there to see if we can measure some Mars quakes. And the other main objective it is just to understand better how Mars was formed. Mm. And you know what's funny? They talk about how this is going to help us understand how a lot of terrestrial planets formed because we have lots of data about Earth. We're now going to collect some data on Mars. That means we have two data points, and that's enough for a trend line. <laughs> <laughs> but we can do comparative studies between what we're observing in the, in the Earth and mm. what we will observe or what we are going to be observing now in Mars thanks to um, the inside lander. And I would like to mention here something very interesting, which is that these rocky planets, the Earth, Mars, but also Mercury, Venus, and the Moon, because the Moon is included in this kind of group mm. of terrestrial planets, so they were formed at the beginning of the solar system just with the merging of very small pieces of rocks, the planetesimals. And all of them, we are assuming that they were moving into different stages, different phases as they were evolving. And in that way, they were able to differentiate between what is happening in the, the center of the planet, the nucleus, and then the surrounding big, thick layer, usually, which is a mantle, mm -hmm. and then the thinner crust. Yes. And all the processes that have been involved, also they are changing the planet. So that is why it is important, this kind of analysis, to get a better, deeper understanding of the nature of these different layers. And that is something that is going to do this Mars inside lander. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would like to mention it is that in the same way it is going to try to find or study the Mars quakes, it will be also able to study meteorites' impacts. Oh, yes, it would too, wouldn't it? Yeah, because it is the same kind of system. Mm. 
and, and naturally they have a system that is so sophisticated and trying to be precise that is very important also to take into account the weather in that moment, particularly the wind, because the wind can affect to those measurements. Because if there is some kind of big wind blowing in the moment, it might seem that it is a mass quake of an impact of a meteorite. Mm. So that is why they have also included a very good meteorological station. Oh. And I'm quite happy about that because that instrument, which is called uh, TWINS, Temperature and Winds for Insight, have been developed in Madrid, in Spain. Oh, cool. By the Intercesic Centro de Astrobiología, uh, Center for Astrobiology. Oh, cool. And it is, not, it is not the first one in Mars. Curiosity has one. Oh, the previous yeah. one, it is based on that. And also the one that is going to, one of the probes that are going to be launched in soon, mm. there will be another of these instruments from, from this same group. Ah, so, fantastic. So I'm very, very happy about that. Spanish science on Mars. Yeah, so that's good. Or instruments on Mars. I don't want to forget to mention that the other instrument that is going to measure the interior of Mars and try to measure the Mars quakes and the impact of meteorites is called HP3 from Heat Flow and Physical Properties Package. For HP3. Yeah, HP3. Very nice. So what does that do? Ah, oh, that is the one that is going to okay. drill. Right, that's the one that's drilling. Okay. <laughs> that is the one yep. that, is, that is drilling and also doing all the kind of... That is a package of, yep. of instruments that is called <laughs> HP3. So it is doing the drilling, it is doing also the, the measuring if there is some kind of movement in the ground because yep. of the Mars quake and so on. Excellent. And it has a pretty damn good camera on it too. And just recently, yesterday, just yesterday, or even today, we got... Some of the clearest images from Mars. Ooh, I didn't ever. see that. These are fantastic. Like we're looking at them right now, guys, and it's just—it looks like you feel like you're on Mars. Wow, that like is you very, really, very, very nice. They're so so clear, so crisp, and there's just so much detail. You can see every single little speck of dust. Well, it is just technology have evolved this is very and true. changed that much and it's, it's wonderful keep in mind that image when later i'm talking about the vikings <laughs> and the where they were taking the photos which is quite fun excellent and of course we have said it has landed successfully but there's one thing i do want to mention about landing on mars is this thing called the seven minutes of terror now when insight landed on mars mars was about eight-ish, seven minutes away, seven light minutes away from the Earth. So, of course, those who are savvy in astronomy and astrophysics would know that that means that there's a seven-minute time delay between getting signals from insight, opportunity, curiosity, all sorts of things over on Mars. So when NASA first got the message from insight saying, that, hey, guys, I've touched the top of the atmosphere, we're good, all systems go for landing, Insight would have already landed, either successfully or unsuccessfully. They would have had no idea. It's just a sit back and wait and watch and cross every single finger and toe you have to hope that it goes down without a hitch. Because if it goes down with a hitch, there is nothing they can do about it. And that is a very, very tricky and difficult 
part about mm-hmm. sending anything to Mars. That's oh, anything in the space, it, even. Yeah, but Mars is particularly tricky. This is true because yes. it is a rocky planet, and it has an atmosphere, but. It's massive enough in order that we have to, that the spacecraft have to be using some kind of reducing the speed mm. and, and the parachutes and the jets and even the balloons or whatever they're using kind of system for stopping that velocity mm. and, and landing safely on Mars. But on the other hand, the atmosphere in this planet is not very thick. That's right. So there's less drag exactly. involved. So it less is, air resistance. It is not that easy. No. And if we have a look to all the missions that humanity has sent to Mars, then we can really start to understand why scientists are so, so scared about this moment in which a spacecraft is landing into Mars. Seven minutes of terror. Sometimes seven, sometimes six, sometimes eight. Sometimes about seven, 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 seven minutes of, of terror. So for providing our listeners a kind of a sense of how this is like, we are going to do a kind of a game. Yes, we have a bit of a game, the Mars Lander game. Christine, she's going to read the name of... A spacecraft. A spacecraft that was sent to Mars. Mm-hmm. And then I will say if that was successful or crashed. Yes. Successful or unsuccessful? Successful. So, I'll... Uh, let, 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 me, let me one moment prepare this. Okay. <laughs> First up is 1M number 1, launched in October 1960 by the Soviet Union. And that was... A crash. <laughs> 1M number 2, October 1960 by the Soviet Union. Yeah, that was another crash, of course. <laughs> of course. 2MV4 number one, locked in October 1962 by the Soviet Union. Um, how can we say this? Crash. Bow-bow. Mars 1, launched in November 1962, also by the Soviet Union. Let's say that the Soviet Union didn't have too much luck. Not, not, much, not much luck. How about 2MV3 number one, launched in November 1962 by the Soviet Union? Crash. Oh dear. We're not doing too good here. How about Mariner 3, uh, November 1964 by NASA? So that was the first one for NASA, but... Oh dear. How about Mariner 4, launched in November 1964 by NASA? No, no, no. That was that. Woo! The first successful one. (laughs) The second one. Yeah. Sorry, I was just used to give... Also, always the same, you know, sound. <coughs> Let's go. Continue. Okay. Zond 2, November 1964 by the Soviet Union. Crash. Oh, dear. Mariner 6, February 1969 by NASA. That was good. Woohoo! 2M number 521, March 1969, Soviet Union. Is it not doing a good job here, the Soviet Union. Uh, Mariner 7, March 1969, NASA. Woohoo! Okay, 2M number 522, April 1969, Soviet Union. They're really not doing too well, are they? No, no, no. As I said, they are not lucky with Mars. They (laughs) actually gave up in some moment. (laughs) Okay, Mariner 8, May 1971, by NASA. Oh, dear. That was also a failure. Cosmos 419, May 1971, Soviet Union. Crash. Crash, gosh. Okay, Mars 2, 19th May... 17, 1971, Soviet Union. 
They finally did it. They finally did it. They finally did it. Mostly successful. Mostly successful. They care because it was doing some mapping operations that they couldn't do because of a lot of storms in the surface of Mars. Gosh, that's just a slap in the face to them, isn't it? They finally did it and then that happened. Okay, Mars 2 lander, May 1971, Soviet Union. Ooh, ouch. (laughs) How about Mars 3, May 1971, Soviet Union? Hey, there we go. There we go. Okay, Mars 3 lander, May 1971, Soviet Union. No. (laughs) Nope. Prop M rover. Rover. It's two rovers. Um, May 1971, Soviet Union. Ooh, ouch. Okay, Mariner 9, May 1971, NASA. That was a good one. That was a good one. The Mariner 9 provide a lot of, of details about Mars, really. Excellent. Okay, Mars 4, July 1973, Soviet Union. Nope. Okay, how about Mars 5, July 1973, Soviet Union? How can I say this? Oh, <laughs> how about Mars 6, August 1973, Soviet Union? Uh, that is also... Gosh, Mars 7, August 1973, Soviet Union? Nope. Okay, how about Viking 1, Orbiter and Lander, 20th of August, 1975, by NASA? Yeah, yeah, of course. Successful! <laughs> Viking 1, that is a very famous one. And how about Viking 2? Viking 2 also. Woohoo! Okay, next we have Phobos 1, in July 1988, by Soviet Union. <laughs> crash, Soviet no. Union, crash. Phobos 2, July 1988, Soviet Union, can I guess? Yes, you can guess. Crash. <laughs> Okay, Mars Observer, September 1992, NASA. Ooh, ouch. Another failure from NASA. Another failure. Mars Global Surveyor, November 1996, NASA. Yay! And that was a very good one, too, and operated for around seven years or so. Oh, go on, NASA. Okay, Mars 96, November 1996, by... Russia. Russia. That was changing from Soviet Union to Russia in that time, and doesn't matter. <laughs> Didn't change the, their track record. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, the Mars Pathfinder, December 1996 by NASA. Of course. Of course, successful. And now, Sojourner, December 1996, NASA. Another rover. Excellent. Here we go, Nozomi, July 1998 by Japan. Japan tried to do it and... Crashed. Failed. Mars Climate Orbiter, December 1998, NASA. Oh, I love this. I love it because that was a stupid failure. Some people in the US were using the miles for calculating distances, while the rest of the world were using kilometers and the international standard units. And that was the reason why this very sophisticated spacecraft crashed on Mars. Oh dear, unit conversion error. Don't you just hate that? Next we have the Mars Polar Lander, January 1999 by NASA. Also failed. Deep Space 2, January 1999, NASA. Another crashed. Mars Odyssey, April 2001, NASA. Woohoo! This is still working. Still working. Great work. Now for the Mars Express, June 2003 by the ESA, Europe. Yeah, finally. Europe uh, comes in and gets it first hole in one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that is also still working, at least until 2026. Oh, very good. 
Next we have Beagle 2, June 2003, also by the ESA, Europe. Oh. Ooh. No, that Not was second very, time unlucky. very sad that, that the Beagle 2 crashed it anyway. Mm. Next is Spirit, June 2003. I think I know which this one is. Successful! Yeah. Then, of course, Opportunity in July 2003, NASA. Very good. Now, the Mars Renaissance. Re, re, no? Yes. Re, yes, Renaissance Orbiter. Uh, Renaissance, no, sorry, Reconnaissance. Re, re, Reconnaissance. Sorry. Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, August 2005 by NASA. MRO, which is. There we go. Next is Phoenix by, from August 2007 by NASA. Another lander that was successful. Oh, good. Here we have Phobos Grunt, November 2011 by Russia. Oh, they're really not doing very good, are they? No. <laughs> uh, Yinguo, November 2001 by China so coming chi- in. China try and... Oh, hit and a miss. Or more like a hit and a crash. <laughs> hit and a crash. <laughs> Next is Curiosity, November 2011 by NASA, of course. Woohoo! The Mars Orbiter Mission, November 2003 by India. India gets a swing and a home run on the first go. Yeah. Then we have Maven, November 2013 by NASA. Also operational, very good. ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, March 2006 by ESA and Russia. Yeah. Uh, so the Russians needed some help from the Europeans <laughs> to get it right. <laughs> to get it right. Although in the same thing, you can read the next one. The Schiaparelli EDM lander, March 2006 by Europe. That was coming with the ExoMars, but unfortunately, Ooh. the Schiaparelli was broken. No, it did. <laughs> and finally, Insight and Marco, May 2018 by NASA. Successful! Yeah. And that is not only the Insight, but also the little... Cube uh, satellite. CubeSats, yeah. Eve and Wally. Yeah, that was that was a very interesting thing. So let me just stop the Benny Hill music. Thank you. And there we go. Those are all of the Mars missions that we know of, at least. Successful and unsuccessful. And I would like to remark the Marco, because they were two little uh, CubeSats, each of a size of 30 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So about a toaster size. Yeah, something like that. It was the very first time that uh, we were able to get this kind of small, very nano satellites mm. in another object that is not uh, around the Earth. And we have to say that the data that they collected of how inside was landing into Mars have been critical, particularly for other missions, to get all the data that uh, they were able to to get. And also the images that these small satellites were taking on Mars, they were equivalent to one of the very first probes that I don't remember which one, Mariner 9 or Mariner 6 or Mariner 3, Mariner 4, I think. one, One of the very first successful NASA missions to Mars, the images in their big spacecraft, they were more or less the same resolution and same quality that these nanosatellites are getting 50 years later. Hmm. Wow. So it is an interesting thought. There we go. So there's a... Wait, hold on, hold on. So we had quite a few successes, but many failures. I wonder, what's the what's the success rate? Ah, yeah, thank you for asking me that. I forgot. So in total, 52 launches or probes sent to Mars, only 22 have been successful which is a 42%. No. 
Yes. 42%. 42. 42. Of all numbers, it's 42. Yeah. That's awesome. The meaning of life, 42%. But since 2003, we have 13 missions in total and 7 that were good. That is almost a 70%. 69% of successful rate, which is quite good. We are we're getting we, better. We are getting better. Yeah. But the good thing it is, I'm trying to do a joke, don't get Russia involved in your trips to Mars. In total, the Soviet Union sent 20 missions to Mars, all crashed, and in total, with Russia, 23 missions to Mars, and only once... The one that was with the European Space Agency, ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, had been successful. Meaning that for Russia, it only has a 4% success landing objects in Mars. <laughs> we have nothing against Russia. It's just, no, no, no. no. We're, just, we're, just, we're just extrapolating from the data. That's all we're doing. <laughs> they were very unlucky. Unlucky indeed. They, they were very unlucky with, with that. And, and as, as we were saying before, it is just very hard to actually do this. Mm. So every little success here, it is actually a huge success in total for space missions and so on. So well done. Well done indeed. Now, what I think we should do now, just give you a bit of an, <laughs> there I go again with the pun, insight hey, hey. into some other rovers and landers. I believe, Angel, you've prepared something about the Viking landers or rovers. Were they landers or rovers? They were landers, so landers. they were not able to move, and they were both an orbiter. Each one of the Vikings have an orbiter and a lander, and they both worked in both cases, so mm-hmm. that was very good. It was a very successful program. The Viking 1 was launched on the 20th of August 1975 and the second one on the September 9, 1975. Although they got to Mars, to the surface of Mars on July 20, 1966, that was the Viking 1, and the Viking 2 on September 3, 1976, which that was the year I was born and that was even a bit before I was born because I was born in 27. But I have always had a kind of connection with this program because it is very well uh, explained in Cosmos by Carl uh, Sagan, in the original yes. Cosmos. So uh, there is even in the Wikipedia article, you can see a very famous photo of Carl Sagan with a model of one of, one of the Viking landers. You see here, a bit small. Oh, there so they, is. Yeah, they, they were not very big. But they really change in some way our understanding of Mars. And they discover many geological forms that are associated with water, and they were thinking about that. We thought with the images we were getting before that they didn't have that much enough resolution, that there was no way of getting water in the surface of Mars. Mm. And they were the orbiters were finding huge river valleys that have been there for a lot of time and regions that have been flooded with water, perhaps the water traveling for thousands of kilometers and even stream networks of very interesting images mm. with, with, the, with the orbiter. With respect to the lander, well, I have a couple of things to say here. One was that they had a very famous biological experiment to try to determine if there was any kind of life in the surface of Mars. 
at the beginning they were very excited because the first uh, results were kind of yes but then later realized that it was a kind of contamination and some few other problems that have, can be explained with uh, non-organic matter and at the end well it didn't show anything that is any kind of life it was very famous also no, for kind of trying to find life in another planet on the solar system and the last thing i would like to mention it is the camera or the imaging system because we are starting to be used to these amazing images and just compare the fantastic image that you have just shown me mm. of the mars inside probe with these high resolution cameras and so on well the camera that uh, the vikings used they the, the camera used a movable mirror to illuminate 12 photodiodes. And each of the 12 silicon diodes were designed to be sensitive to different frequencies of light. And they can only focus in a particular range between uh, something like a couple of meters to 30, 20 meters. Yep. So not that much. And they were scanning vertically. And that is very well seen in Cosmos, in, in the TV series by Carl Sagan, because it was scanning five vertical scans per second, and each of those were only 512 pixels. Wow. That, that's... Wow. <laughs> there is a very famous 300-degree panorama that is composed by 9,150 lines that mm. have been taken in, in verticals. And it was so, so slow. It did, needed some few time to get the photos. Yeah. And we are talking about the 70s here. Mm. So that is technology of the mid-70s. That's, that's five not bad. years, Five years, basically, five to ten years after mm. we got to the moon. Exactly, so, yes. Technology has changed a lot. It does, and it changed so quickly as well. Now, other ones that I wanted to mention is, of course, Opportunity and Spirit, the uh, the cousin rovers that went along together, or twin rovers, I should say. So they were part of the NASA Mars Exploration Rover mission, or the MER, M-E-R region, mission. Both rovers launched in 2003, about a month apart, in June and July, and both landed in January 2004 in separate locations, OPI, Opportunity, Opportunity. Is, was landed in uh, Meridiani Planum, and Spirit landed in Gustav Kreta, mm. which is very, very, I love saying that. It sounds so cool. Now, they were both planned to only be a 90-day mission. And for how long were they? And that's the sad part, though. We have to say how long were they going for, for both of them now. <sighs> Still sad. Um, both very much exceeded their expectations. Spirit was active until 2010, 25 times longer than expected. Mm -hmm. And but Opportunity was active this year, but she might be gone forever now. Yeah, that is so sad. They're, they're still trying, I think. Still holding out hope a little bit. But, yeah, um, there is still a bit of hope, but yeah, so they, not they held that out, much. They held out hope for about a year mm. with Spirit when it went down. So there's still time. The most beautiful thing about spirit and opportunity is how they were named this is wonderful they were named by a russian american nine-year-old girl called sophie collins in a student essay competition uh -huh. okay so people sent in their little essays to say oh what they why they think the rose should be called this and that and her submission is so so beautiful she her submission read i used to live in an orphanage it was dark and cold and lonely at night i looked up at the sparkly sky and felt better I dreamed I could fly there. In America, I can make all my dreams come true. Thank you for the spirit and opportunity. Uh, Isn't that wonderful? Very, very nice, yes. Isn't that so nice? 
Um, and of course, the difference between spirit and opportunity and the Vikings is that these two are rovers. So they move around. And opportunity has almost completed a full marathon. Almost. Almost, almost 42 kilometers. Almost 42 kilometers. It's, 42 it's like, kilometers again, 42 again. For, yeah, for, oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> 42, it keeps coming up. It, it, I think it was about 40.1 kilometers that it traveled in total. Oppie, you could have had a marathon. On Mars. But unfortunately, she did not. She fell just short. And those great images that these two rovers have been providing... Oh. All the views. And, and also, I was very surprised to see the difference in terrain between the two of them. Mm. One of them, I think that the one in, in the Gustav, that is opportunity, right? That's that spirit. Was, spirit that is in spirit. Gustav. That was kind of not that uh, many stones and pebbles. Mm. It was just a bit more s- smooth surface in, in the crater. Mm. I think to remember properly. Perhaps I'm, I'm doing this in memory, so perhaps I'm wrong. And now that is also evidence is that there was a lake in the past and that ah, was also the reason why it was so smooth and, and even yeah. the kind of material that they were studying in the in the soil. They were finding like minerals. minerals that they are only created when you have water, liquid water. Mm. There. But the contrast with opportunity on, on the other part, that it was very rocky, so it was quite busy of stones yep. and so on. Indeed. So actually, wait, I'm checking and it is the other way around. Opportunity, which landed in Meridiani Planum, that was the very smooth surface. And the spirit that landed in Gustav Crater, that was a very rocky uh, surface. So, well, the, the difference between the two of them. Yes, and the other one I want to talk about is curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. It's another good one. Now, the difference between spirit and opportunity... And curiosity is their battery and how they get their power. Spirit and Opportunity, they are both powered by a solar-charged lithium-ion batteries, which is the reason why we lost Spirit in 2010. Mm-hmm. And the reason why perhaps we have also lost Also the reason why we hope, hopefully haven't, but possibly have lost Opportunity, uh, because their solar panels were covered by dust and they could no longer pa- charge themselves or power themselves any longer. However, with Curiosity, it was launched in November 2011, landed in August 2012, landed in the Gale Crater. Its power source is of the nuclear kind. Mm-hmm. It's very, very cool. It's got a nuclear battery that uses plutonium-238, which should last, it for, should last for a very long time, minimum time of 14 years, but plutonium-238 has a half-life of about 87.7 years, So, which explaining to those who don't know what the half-life means, if you have 10 grams of plutonium-238, after 88 years, you'll have 5 grams. After after another 88 years, you'll have 2.5 grams. It halves each time you go through a half-life. So it should last for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We hope that. I would like to mention now, just because we are starting to be a bit too long here, <laughs> at least... Surprise, uh, surprise. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> with all the kind of the game... At least a bit of how we can observe Mars with a small telescope from Earth. Yes. And that will be, let's say, our second WhatsApp for today's episode. Mm. Because Mars is right now very easily seen through more or less at the west. Yep. After sunset, 
in Aquarius and it has a very bright magnitude that is almost zero, which is one of the brightest objects in the sky. Mm. It is not as bright as that it was in July, August. When it was at an opposition. When it was in opposition, which was two and a half, minus two and a half. Or so it was like very that. bright. It was, very, it was very, fantastic. Very it was one of the brightest objects in the sky for sure. It is not a good moment to see Mars through a telescope because the only thing you're going to see it is a very a tiny, circle. small thing. Not circle because we are starting to see half, half of the part that is illuminated by the sun and a bit, let's say, one third that is not illuminated by the sun. Oh, really? And, I haven't noticed. Yeah, and two thirds that is illuminated by the sun. Oh. So even though it is not an interior planet, as Mercury and Venus, that we can see very clearly their faces, mm. when they are in this kind of moments, relatively far from us, in the west or in the east, close to the sun, with our perspective, we still can see a bit of the day-night transition. There you go. I didn't know that. But, That's cool. But still, it is it is far. So it is far. It is only it's right about now. 150 million light years. Yeah. Uh, not light years. Whew, that'd be Eight, very far. 8.7 arc seconds. Perhaps one third, it is a bit too much. Perhaps it will be around one four, one fifth. So it is, a, it is, not, it is not big, but yeah. if you get a photo and, and you see through it, mm. you, you will notice that it is not completely rounded yeah. for sure. Well, you can try to have a look to there, but for sure... It is very easy to see with your naked eye. On top of that, right now it is very close to Neptune, or I will say, apparently from the Earth, mm -hmm. Neptune and Mars are more or less in the same position in the sky. And Ooh. there are people that have been taking photos of both Mars and Neptune in the same image. Oh, so very that's nice. cool. There you go. But the last thing I want to say regarding observing Mars, it is that it has never been my favorite planet. It's not an exciting one, is it really? No, it is not it's Jupiter. Not it is not Saturn. So I remember the very first planets that I was able to see through, through a telescope were these big, giant planets, mm. Saturn with the rings, very easily. Jupiter with the bands and the satellites. Wow. Mm. And then I tried to have a look to Mars that was perhaps not in a very good moment. Mm. And it was just quite disappointing. Yes. <laughs> one of the... Uh, one of the second most common thing children say when they look at Mars, often, it, usually it is a bit of a wow, oh my goodness, this is so cool. But the second most common uh, response is, is that it? Yeah, and exactly. I, I, I understand how they feel. It is a little bit underwhelming, but it's still a planet. I have to confess that because of this, I had never been that much attracted to Mars or mm. even the exploration of Mars. Yeah, of course, I love and enjoy a lot of images and the spacecraft and all of that, but not that much into, not into all the details and so on. Well, I still prefer having a look to my distant galaxies, mm, yes. <laughs> nebula and so on, or, or other planets. Anyway, I, ha I have to say it. In any case, and that is something that I really, really don't want to forget to mention here, even though when you're looking to Mars through a telescope, in the best moment that we can, mm -hmm. that is in one of these oppositions, yeah. you will not be able to see too many details. Not much. Sometimes you're lucky, a bit of a polar ice cap. Yeah, you can see that. That's mm. probably the very first feature that you will be able to see. And a bit of tiny difference in color in the terrain mm. with your naked eye, looking, sorry, with your naked eye, but looking through the telescope. Yeah. And that was the reason why someone compared 
that when you are looking at the moon with your naked eye, mm. you will see many more details in the moon than Mars through a telescope, even through a big telescope, yeah. in the best moment that you can observe Mars. Yes. And that was the reason some people started to say in 2003, this day, August 2003, 29 August 2003, I think it was, you are going to see Mars as big as the full moon in the sky. No. And that no. is a hoax that has been recurrently happening every year in August. You are going to see Mars as large in the sky as it is the moon. That's just silly. Yeah, well, it is there and it is. It has been before even social media. I remember receiving <laughs> this kind of emails, random email, spam emails saying, oh, look at Mars because of that. And well, just to put everything in its place. That is not right. I'm so disappointed that that, that actually, never happened. That, I'm so disappointed that that exists. It's like the full, it's like the supermoon thing again, all over again, but worse. Yeah, I think oh. I, perhaps I even mentioned a bit of this in the episode we were talking about the supermoons. Yeah. Okay. So we have enough of Mars. We've done plenty of Mars now. Yes. Yeah. So, so now it's time for some feedback. We have some feedback. Yeah, we have some feedback. Yes, we have some feedback from at panda underscore hill on Twitter. They say, hi, the scientists. Loved your show on meteor showers. Thank you. Thank you indeed. When we hear that a meteor shower is due, is it worldwide or only from certain locations you can view? I'm in Brisbane and regularly look up ex during expected showers, but I am yet to see any. Thanks again for your great hashtag podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for that very interesting and very clever question. Mm, it's a very important question too, um, because we do speak to Northern and Southern Hemisphere uh, listeners. So we do need to be very careful on what we choose as our WhatsApp. Yeah. The important thing about observing a meteor shower it is that the radiant, the point in the sky that the meteors are coming from, is over the horizon. So it has to be over the horizon. Yep. If not, you will not be able to see any meteors from that meteor shower just because the meteors are moving in a different way and not to you. Yeah. In some way. Yes. So that is the only tricky part for the Geminids. That is what we are going to be talking a bit more about in a moment. The thing it is that you have to observe Gemini, the constellation of Gemini in the sky. If, if Which is visible from all places of Earth. Yes. Because it's one of these zodiac constellations. So it goes, it, the sun goes through this constellation. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is a nice example of the Perseids in August because it is a very famous meteor shower in the northern hemisphere, mm. but it is not famous in the southern hemisphere. Why? Because the radiant is in some way between Perseus and Cassiopeia. Which is well, not very common in the southern hemisphere. very, very north. Yeah. Even though if it is, the radiant is visible from your position here in Australia, let's say from the southern hemisphere, mm. it, it probably would be very, very low. So yeah. you will only see some few meteors. That's right. Yeah. And I will mention a bit more later during our WhatsApp section. Or do we are just Let's just go jumping, right into, jumping, jump right jumping into it. Into the What's up? We're looking up at the Gemini's meteor shower. Gemini's meteor shower. Yes, so it is important that the Radiant, the Gemini constellation, is there. And it's also very important where you are in, in the Earth to see more or less meteors. Mm, because it depends on, like we discussed in our last episode, depends on where the Earth is moving into this debris field that we talked about last episode. Yes, but also it depends on how high the radiant is in the sky. Mm. So when we are trying to estimate how many meteors can be observed in a meteor shower 
in a specific time, in an hour usually, we are using the zenithal hourly rate, mm -hmm. ZHR, which is assuming that the radiant, the point in the sky where the meteors are coming from, is in the zenith. Ah, oh, that's what that means. So you have to correct that. Yes. So even the Geminids sometimes can reach the 120, 150 mm. meters per hour. But that's when it, the radiant is right above you. Exactly. That is not happening from Australia. Definitely not. Because <laughs> Gemini, it is a constellation from the north. It's, it's very far north at the moment, yes. So the, it depends where you are in Australia. You will get a higher rate of meteors or lower. Mm. So I have some statistics here for December 15 in the peak of the Geminids. If you're in Darwin, you can get around 40 meteors per hour. That's decent. If you are in Sydney, Adelaide, Canberra, you can get 22 meteors per hour, which is almost half. Yeah, less decent. <laughs> and if you go to Hobart, which is in Tasmania, only 16 meteors per hour. Ooh. Tough break for Tasmania. <laughs> because it is getting... It's the, very, very the, the low. The is going down and down. Yeah. On an altitude in the sky. Now, does this include light pollution statistics as well? It has to be corrected. Yes. Okay. So yeah. that number, it is what you should expect, the number of meteors you should expect to see in a complete dark sky with your naked eye, assuming that the radiant is above you in the face. Right. Okay. So if you are in a light polluted area, you will see even less than those. Anyway, let's say a number of perhaps in the peak between 20, 30, even 40 meters per hour. If you are in a light polluted area, perhaps a bit half of it, mm. so 20, let's say 20 meters per hour. Although so, the Gemini's meteors are generally relatively bright. Yeah, they are, so they are, they are relatively bright. And that is okay. the other important point of studying meteor showers, mm. which is how bright the meteors are. Yeah. Do you see many more bright objects, meaning that they are a bit bigger objects mm. coming into the atmosphere, or just tiny particles that you can even just, like, detect? <laughs> very tiny speckles. With, with that exact sound effect, too. With that sound <laughs> effect. <laughs> okay. Our WhatsApp for this episode will be to please have a look to the Geminids if you can. Mm -hmm. If you happen to catch a photo as well, send it our way. I, I want to see it. Please, please, yes, do it. That'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. And with that, plus having a look to Mars, and please trying to find also 40CP Wertan and Comet. I think that we are more than done for this episode of, well, it says an hour, but I will clean a bit. <laughs> So, yeah, we, we should really stop advertising that we talk for 30 minutes because it never happens. <laughs> it's always a bit more. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you very much for, for listening. And please, we are waiting for your feedback and your comments. Mm -hmm. Always, you can contact us at The Scientists on Facebook and Twitter and through email as well, thescientist at gmail.com. Send your questions. We love them. Yeah, I'm um, also you are listening to this or perhaps it is not point of pro providing any extra publicity but we are not only in SoundCloud at the moment mm. we are also in iTunes we are in Spotify we are in iBox we're so in pretty much are... almost all of the major podcasting platforms now yeah, I'm trying to name but still for whatever reason it is not working and, and the Google system is also not working anyway but we will we will get there eventually we will so thank you very much for listening 
That's all from us for now. Bye. Bye bye.